Mark chapter 14. Now that we're back in Mark, uh, I think we're in verse 26. Let's try it out. We'll start reading in verse 26. You'll remember that the context is uh, that they have just finished the Last Supper. And the last time that we were in the book of Mark together, we talked about communion. There at the Last Supper, the Passover meal, Jesus instituted this thing called communion. We talked about that. We partook in that together. And now we pick it up in verse 26 of Mark 14. It says, And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Interesting, historically speaking, knowing some Jewish background there, when it says they sang a hymn, they were probably singing Psalm 118. So you might write that down and check it out later. They were probably singing together Psalm 118, maybe even Psalm 115 through Psalm 118 as they went out to the Mount of Olives. Neat to see a picture of Jesus Christ worshiping the Father by singing that hymn with the disciples. Kind of cool. Verse 27, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, we've had this wonderful time. It's been the Passover meal, the Last Supper. He instituted communion. Judas has left to betray him. The disciples are still a little confused about that, we know from the text. They thought maybe he went to get some stuff for the Passover meal. They really couldn't believe that Judas was a betrayer. They sang a hymn together, probably Psalm 118, and they're heading out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus drops another bomb. As he said earlier that night, one of you will betray me. Now he says, all of you will fall away. And then he quotes Zechariah 13, 7. I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. A prophecy there about the Messiah that he would be struck down at the cross and some of the sheep, the disciples, as we'll see tonight, would be scattered. Or today, excuse me. Verse 28. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter said to Jesus, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to Peter, truly I say to you, that you yourself this very night before a cock crows twice shall three times deny me. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing too. And then I want us to see verse 72. Verse 72 says, And immediately a cock crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Here we see before us the denial of Jesus Christ by Simon Peter. We're going to take a couple weeks to study this uh, event that took place in Gethsemane. We're going to be talking about the Lord's Prayer next week as he prayed in Gethsemane and some other details, the arrest, so on and so forth. But today, we're going to narrow in on Peter's denial of Jesus Christ. We see that they went from the supper together to singing a hymn to Peter saying, Jesus, everyone else might bail out on you. Everyone else may fall away, but I will never fall away, Lord. I'm willing to go to prison and to death with you. And before the cock crowed twice, and in Jerusalem, cocks generally crow three times between midnight and dawn. Before the cock crowed twice, he would deny Jesus three times. And the end result was he went out and he wept. Some of the Gospels say he went out and he wept bitterly. The kind of weeping where your chest is heaving and convulsing. That uncontrollable when your heart is broken sort of weeping. And Peter's denial happened literally overnight. Not suddenly, mind you. 
It was the course of an evening, but it did happen overnight. And what we're going to see in our text today is that there is a series of small compromises that led to his downfall. A series of small compromises that led to his denying Jesus Christ. In and of themselves, they seem relatively harmless. They didn't seem too destructive. When you put the sum of them together, they were destructive in the life of Peter, and they led to misery. We're going to be looking at, from our text, five steps to misery. I'm going to want you to write down every single one of them and be very aware of them today. Five steps to misery. As we look at them, we will see the progressive nature of sin. Listen to me. Sin never stands alone. Sin is like an investment. It builds upon itself. Isn't that horrible? Sin does not happen in a vacuum. It does not stand alone. It always builds upon itself. Sin upon sin. Sin has a progressive, destructive nature. We're going to see that in the life of Peter. And one evening he goes from, I will never deny you, to saying, I never knew him. Three different times. And so here's what I want us to do. As we look at the fall of Peter today, I want us to look at our own lives very carefully. I want us to open up our hearts, humble ourselves before the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, you know my heart. Lord, I am allowing you, I am asking you, I am begging of you, Lord, to fire warning shots across my bow this morning. Lord, if I am heading in the wrong direction, I want to know about it. If I'm going down a road that is destructive, if I am compromising in little ways, if I am engaging in sin that is building upon sin, I want to know about it, Lord. Lord, show us. The first thing that we will see about Peter is that he was self-confident. That is the first step to misery. Write it down. The first step of five to misery is that Peter was self-confident. We see it in verses 29 and 31. Even though all may fall away, yet I will not, Peter said. And in verse 31, he was insistently saying, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Now it goes on to say they were all saying the same. But it is only Peter that went through with denying him. Peter's problem at the outset was that he was self-confident. Now, if you're listening with the ears of the world, if your ears have not been infiltrated with the Word of God, you immediately say, well, what's wrong with that? Because the philosophy of the world is believe in yourself. Be confident in yourself. In hard times, look within, look to yourself, draw from an inner strength. And the Bible says, the Bible says there's nothing good in you. The Bible says that the Lord is to be our rock and our fortress and our tower and our strength. He is to be our security. He is to be our anchor, the hope of our souls. It's interesting that Jesus said in the parallel text in Luke 22, 31 through 32, we have it on the PowerPoint. In the same event, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, put yourself in the shoes of Peter here. It would seem that when Jesus said to you, put your name in there. Brit, Brit, whatever your name is. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. In other words, inherent in that statement is, I'm going to let him. 
Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. The Lord doesn't say, but I said no. The Lord says, and I'm praying for you. Nothing comes into your life that does not pass through the sovereign lens of God, through the lens of God's sovereignty, better said. Remember when Satan went to mess with Job? Had to ask permission of God. Satan is on a leash from God. But God allows him some activity in our lives for our refining, for our sifting. Sift you like wheat to put you in this little thing and have these little graders rub together and get out all the impurities, all the junk, all the chaff. Very violent. Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I'm praying for you. Notice that he called him Simon. He called him Simon again. But remember in John chapter 1, verse 42, when he looked at him and he said, your name is Simon, but from now on you shall be called Kepha, or Peter, stone or rock. I'm changing your name. You are the rock. And we see in Peter's natural character, he was anything but the rock. He was impetuous and vacillating and flaky. In fact, he would deny the Lord this night. But in God's eyes, you're something different. You see, God sees the potential. God sees the finished product. God sees the man or the woman that he is determined to make you into. And according to Philippians 1.6, he is faithful to complete the work that he's begun in you. But part of the work that had to happen in Peter was that he would come under the temptation of the enemy. Simon, Simon. Do you know what his old name Simon means? It means here. And so it's almost as if when the Lord stops calling him Peter later in the Gospels and calls him Simon, it's almost as if he's saying, listen, watch out for that old nature, Peter. Watch out for that old flesh. Simon, Simon, here, here, listen, listen. Remember the old you, the one who's not the rock? You're going to get sifted. The next phrase is beautiful, but I have prayed for you. That your strength may not fail when once you have returned a prophecy there. When once you have returned, strengthen your brothers. In other words, Christian, he said to Peter, you will be stronger having gone through this than you are tonight. It will be the worst thing you have ever experienced, Peter. It'll be a tremendous battle and a tremendous trial. But when you go through it, you will be able to strengthen your brethren. And indeed, we know that Peter became the pillar of the early church. And isn't it good to know that Jesus was praying for him, that his strength may not fail? Now, he failed in the sense that he denied the Lord, but he didn't fail like Judas failed. Judas betrayed the Lord and then went out and hung himself. Peter was restored to the Lord. Peter went ahead and made his way to Galilee at the command of the angel after the resurrection to be restored on the shore of the Sea of Galilee by Jesus Christ. His strength didn't fail completely. And so he warned him very clearly, Simon, Satan wants to mess with you. I'm going to let him. The proper response should have been, Oh no, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Strengthen me. Protect me. Lord, what should I do? Instead of, Oh no, Lord. It's the second time, really, that he's contradicted the word of God. You remember Caesarea Philippi there in northern Israel above the Sea of Galilee? Caesarea Philippi. Jesus said, I'm going to the cross. And Peter said, may it never be. And he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. In other words, Peter was buying into the lie of Satan at that time. Get behind me, Satan. Because you are thinking the thoughts of men, not the thoughts of God. And now for a second time, he contradicts the word of God. 
says, what are you talking about, Jesus? I'm not going to fall. James will. <laughs> For sure. John, Andrew, Thomas, Thomas, Thomas is going to blow it for sure. Not me. Never me. Self-confidence. It ought to have been. His response, when the Lord warns you, your response ought to be, Lord, help me. Are you able to hear the warnings of the Lord? Simon, Simon, hear, hear. Are you able to hear when God warns you? If you're not reading the word, you're not hearing He speaks so loudly through his word. He also speaks directly to you by his Holy Spirit. But don't expect the Spirit to give you revelation if you ignore the revelation that is already in the pages of the book. If you are not reading the word, you're not going to hear the warning of God. And when you read the word and there's a behavior in your life that doesn't line up with the word of God, what is your response? It ought to be, Lord, help me. Help me now to bring this area into correction. There ought to be a godly fear. God, I don't want to offend you because you're holy and you're the judge. And God, I don't want to blow it and go down this road of sin because I know it's destructive. Lord, help me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has overcome you except for that which is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not let you be tempted beyond that which you are able to bear, but with the temptation will provide the way out that you may stand up underneath it. Now, we're all tempted in the same way. No temptation has overcome you except for that which is common to man. We always think we're the only one in the world. Nobody knows. Oh, if somebody knew what I was going through. Everybody knows, man. Everybody goes through the same stuff. The Bible says so. But God is faithful who will not let you be tempted beyond that which you're able to bear. God has put parameters on temptation. As I said before, he's got the enemy, the tempter, the liar on a short leash. He has put parameters and the promise is that we don't have to fail in those moments of temptation. Yes, Peter would be stronger having gone through the denial, but I would suggest to you that he would have been stronger had he never denied the Lord and stood up under the temptation. He didn't have to fail. No temptation has overcome you except for that which is common to man, but God is faithful who will not let you be tempted beyond that which you're able to bear. That's such a bummer for the Christian. I mean, it's wonderful because there's parameters on temptation, but it's a bummer because it takes that crutch away. That crutch where we say, oh, I couldn't help it. I had to do it. Not according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Or the devil made me do it. No. He doesn't have that power over you. He can't make you do anything. He tempts you and you choose to sin. The Bible is very clear about that. But Peter was self-confident, and so he destined himself for failure. Understand that the Christian life requires the power of God to sustain us. You cannot walk in the Christian life. You cannot live a Christian life without relying upon the power of God. Jesus said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. In other words, he is to be our sustenance. If you are to be sustained in Christianity, if you are to blossom and flower and bloom and grow and bear fruit, you must feed upon the person of Jesus Christ. He is the bread of life. You can't be like Peter and say, no, Lord, not me. I'm cool. I'm okay. Next time you catch yourself saying, I'm all right, slap yourself. You're not. It says very clearly in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Take heed if any man thinks he is strong, lest he fall. Take heed. Be warned if you think you're strong, lest you fall. We've got to be feeding upon the bread of life, and then we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
He is the promise of the Father. He is the power by which we can be witnesses. He is the power by which we cry out, Abba, Father. He is the power by which we can walk in obedience, by which we are able to bear out the fruit of the Spirit. It is the power of the Spirit. If you are not daily saying to God, God, I need the power of your Spirit in my life today, and seeking after that, you're in trouble. And if you're not daily feeding upon the bread of life, Christ Jesus, in the Word and in communing with Him, you're in trouble. The Bible is called in the book of Hebrews the pure milk. The pure milk of the Word. We're to be longing for it like babes. You're to wake up in the morning and go, I need a little milk. We're to be longing for it receiving nourishment from it, and we are to be basking in the love of the Father as children. One thing I know about children is they are needy, aren't they? Oh, goodness, there's a needy one right now. That's okay, Mama. Take, yeah, yep, yeah, that's okay. They are needy. I've got a four-year-old. He gets needier every day. I've got a one-year-old, less needy than my four-year-old, really. You just plop her down with some food or some toy or something dangerous, and she's happy. The four-year-old constantly in need. We're to have childlike faith, not childish faith, but childlike faith, meaning we are to realize that we are in need and that we are to rely upon the Father and seek the Father. If we're relying upon ourselves, we're in big trouble. But it's contrary to the philosophy of the world, isn't it? The world says be self-confident. Look within. None of us here would readily admit, I don't think, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm self-confident, I, I, I'm in trouble, but let me give you some symptoms of what it might look like to help you discern. You go through your week and you think you have no need to read the Bible, you are overly self-confident. If you go through the week and you think you have no need of fellowshipping with other Christians, you are overly self-confident. If you go through the week and think you have no need for accountability, somebody in your life, another Christian brother or sister who can get in your face and call you out lovingly on sin, if you think you have no need of that and you're not making a place for that in your life, you are overly confident. You are deep into the first step toward misery. And the last way that you know is by your prayer life. If you haven't scheduled prayer into your life, If you go through the week without praying, alone in your prayer closet, so to speak, and with others, you are overly self-confident. You are destined for a fall. Uh, Nobody would say, hey, I don't need prayer. I'm okay. Although one time, it's funny, I was uh, surfing down at Tar Pits. This is years ago. And I was with a friend of mine, Ian O'Neill, and uh, we grabbed another kid. And we were kind of trying to share the Lord with him and stuff like that. And he wasn't a Christian yet. And we're just about to go out and surf. And we like to pray before we surf. I remember we said, hey, so-and-so, come here, man. We want to pray. And he said, oh, no, I'm good. I'm all prayed up. No problem. <laughs> he wasn't a Christian, mind you. A Christian would never say that. Oh, nope, I don't, I don't, I'm all good. I wouldn't say that. But listen, how you live reveals what you really think. How you live, the choices you make, how you schedule things, betrays or reveals what is in your heart. What you think is necessary. When you're hungry, you get food. That reveals that you value food. When you're thirsty, you get something to drink. That reveals that you value that. When you're suffocating, you breathe. That reveals that you value air. How is your prayer life? 
Do you value it? The second step toward misery is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. We see it in verses 37 and 38. Let's look at it. Oh, I got to go back to it. Mark 14, verse 37 and 38. Uh, here's what happened now. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll talk about this next week. Jesus left the disciples here. He took the inner circle of three, uh, James, Peter, and John, a little further, and then Jesus went a little further to pray, engaging in the spiritual battle that was the Garden of Gethsemane that we'll talk about next week. But look in verse 37. It says, And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, listen, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He already told him, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. I'm going to let him, but I'm going to pray for you. And when you've returned, you'll strengthen your brother. And then he takes him in the garden of Gethsemane. He leaves, I can't do math, uh, some of the disciples there. He takes the other three a little further, and he says to them, watch and pray. And Jesus goes just a stone's throw away, and he begins to pray on his knees, and then we're told in the Gospels that Jesus falls to his face. This is the time when he was sweating blood, in actual condition, hematidrosis, caused by severe stress. Because he knew the cross that laid before him, and the cup of sin that would be poured out upon him, that he would have to drink to pay the price for our sins. And he told the disciples, okay, listen, guys. Peter, I already told you there's a spiritual battle taking place. Watch, stay here, and pray. And Jesus goes off and prays, and he comes back, and they're sleeping. He says, can't you keep watch for one hour? Pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit is willing. The Spirit wants to do what's right. Hooray, hurrah, but the flesh is so weak. And we are told that it happened three times. Came back and found them sleeping. Jesus went away and prayed again. Came back and found them sleeping again. Said, come on, guys. Pray. Keep watch with me. There is a spiritual battle going on. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the night before the cross. Jesus won the battle of the will. But Peter and the boys lost it. Jesus came to that place as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we'll see next week, where he said, Father, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. The last time that he came back to Peter... And found him sleeping. He said, are you still sleeping? You can't pray? And then he said, enough. Enough. The hour is at hand. In other words, he said to Peter and the boys, your will be done. That is the worst thing you could ever hear God say to you. Okay, your will be done. You realize that if we persist in sin, God's spirit will not always strive with us. There comes a point, according to Romans chapter 1, where he will turn you over to your sin. He will warn you, and he will warn you, and he will warn you, even as he did Judas, even as he was Peter and the boys here. But there comes a time where he says, okay, your will be done. And the battle was lost for Peter at that moment because of prayerlessness. When Jesus says to him, keep watching and praying, for him not to do it is a sin. Jesus taught in uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 1, that men ought always to pray. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 that we are to pray without ceasing. Paul writes in 1 Timothy that we are to offer up prayers for all men. The thrust of the Bible is that the Christian is to be in in an attitude of prayer at all times. And because it's a command, let me give it to you very clearly. If we don't, we are in sin. It doesn't mean that we're eyes closed, on our knees, praying like this all the time. 
To pray in its simplest uh, definition means to go to. To go to God. Are you continually going to God in an attitude of communion, in an attitude of reliance upon Him? Lord, I need you for every situation in my life today. That's praying without ceasing. Maintaining that attitude of contact. And what it does is it keeps us spiritually alert. It keeps us spiritually alert. I have a little, or someone made up a little saying that says, pray or be pray. Pray, P-R-A-Y, or be pray, P-R-E-Y. Be pray for who? Satan. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be alert. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I could never paint the picture of the spiritual battle that was taking place in the Garden of Gethsemane that night. Satan was tempting the Lord to skip the cross. Jesus, being so aware of the cross, on his face praying to the Father, sweating blood, and Peter and the boys sleeping. Be sober, be alert, because your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, says, take care, take care, be careful, be aware, be alert, take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We begin to see from that phraseology, from that passage, and in our text here, this progressive nature of sin. It started out with Peter that he's just too self-confident. And so when Jesus said, stay here and pray, Peter didn't think it was important. He thought, I'm okay. We're okay. John, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. James, you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Let's sleep a little bit. It's been long. I'm full of the communion and everything. Are you spiritually alert? Are you praying or are you sleeping? Prayer is something that requires attention. It requires um, effort. It is not easy. It doesn't come natural. Every time you go to pray, your body's going to be saying, this is dumb. I don't want to do this. I don't want to get on my knees. I got other things to do. Guaranteed. Who can relate to this? Every time you go to pray, you will think of everything that you forgot to do that week. Every time you go to pray, you remember the person you're supposed to call, the bill you're supposed to pay, this and that and the other. Chuck Smith says, go and pray. And every time one of those comes to your mind, just write it down on a little to-do list. And after a little while, you'll have it all written down and then you can put it aside and begin to pray. The enemy is always going to try to stop you from praying. But it says in James chapter 4, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. If you begin to pray and the enemy says, well, that's dumb, and you say, yeah, I agree, this is dumb, you lost. If you begin to pray and the enemy says, this is dumb, you got a lot of things to do. Resist him, stand firm in the truth, and eventually he'll flee from you. I believe it was Martin Luther who said, I have so many things to do today that I must spend the first three hours of the day in prayer. It's contrary to our thinking, huh? I'm so busy today, I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to read the word. I got a lot to do. Martin Luther, I'm so busy today, I've got to spend the first three hours in prayer. What a wonderful example for us. What an encouragement. I want you to see that as Peter was self-confident and as he was prayerless, that there is a result of acting out in the flesh in the midst of a difficult time. Verse 47. 
They've come to arrest Jesus now. And in verse 47, it says, But a certain one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slaves of the high priest, or the slave of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Now, John chapter 18, verse 10 tells us that it was Peter who did this, that the servant was named Malchus. And so they come to arrest Jesus, and Peter's response was totally in the flesh. He pulls out his sword and... He cuts off the ear of the high servant. No one aims for the ear with a sword. He was so spazzy now. He was obviously aiming for his head. First of all, he's in the flesh because he did the wrong thing. We read from the account in Matthew, the Lord rebukes him. He says, put away your sword. All those who live by the sword will die from the sword. He says, Peter, don't you think that I could ask the Father and he would send 12 legions of angels? A legion is over 6,000 people or 6,000 angels. He said, don't you think if I asked the Father, he would give me 12 legions of angels? Every resource in heaven is available to me, Peter, and you're lopping off people's ears? But isn't that what happens when we're self-confident and we're prayerless and we're beginning to get in that place of not being spiritually alert? And when things get spiritually tense, we act out in the flesh and we blow it. Don't you know what I'm talking about? You blow it. Oh, why did I do that? Oh, here's how dumb. Uh, Peter would have felt. It says in one of the other gospel accounts that after he laughed off the ear, Jesus knelt down and picked up the guy's ear and went, and put it back on his head. How dumb do you feel if you're Peter at that moment? Lord, I'm willing to go to prison and to death. Oh gosh, Pete. Puts the ear back on the guy. But how quickly do we get in the flesh and act out in the flesh and do such a silly thing? When Jesus has every resource of heaven available to him. All we need to do is call upon him. Number three is following at a distance. Number one was self-confidence. Number two was prayerlessness. And now we see the result of these is that Peter is following Jesus at a distance. Mark 14, verse 54. It says, And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. Now, Jesus had been arrested. They're taking him off to a series of trials. And Peter is lurking in the shadows. He's following behind. Wait a minute. Pete, you, you said just a couple hours ago, maybe, or just a little while ago, really, that you're willing to go to prison with him. You're willing to go to death with him. That you would never leave him or forsake him. But now when the moment comes, Peter, you're following at a distance. I need to ask you this morning. Are you following Jesus at a distance? He's called you to walk with him in intimacy. He died on the cross that we might be with him in intimacy. And only you and the Holy Spirit know the answer to this. Where are you with Jesus Christ today? Are you relying upon his strength? Are you seeking his face in prayer daily? Are you feasting upon the bread of life, calling upon the power of the Holy Spirit, relying and resting in the Father's love? Or are you just kind of going through the motions? You're still a Christian. You're still heading in the right direction, generally speaking. Peter was still heading in the direction of Jesus, generally speaking, but no longer walking side by side with him. He had fallen away, so to speak. The progression brings him to a distance. I want you to note it was just little compromises. It's always the small thing. 
things. Satan is so wise today. He never tempts us with the big things. He's not going to come to you and say, hey, um, today, commit adultery, leave your wife, get addicted to cocaine, lose everything, get arrested, destroy your family and your life. How about it? Today. He, he doesn't do that, does he? He says, hey, flirt a little bit. Play around a little bit. Just little looks here and there. Little things you say. You need a stimulant? Start on something small. Need something to escape with? Something other than Jesus. Just a little something. And when you give in to those small compromises, he's got you on a hook. He's beginning to reel you in. It's just a small step. It's not that big of a deal. But you put it together in a series, and it leads to destruction. Just a self-confident, loud-mouthed guy is all Peter was. Forgot to pray, slept a little bit. Now he's following in a distance, and I want you to see the absolute horror of step number four. It's the second part of verse 54. It says, And Peter was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. These are the people that are going to crucify Jesus Christ. These are the people that will yell out, kill him. These are the ones that have been plotting against him. These are the ones that received or gave the money to Judas. These are the ones that would kill the Lord. And Peter is seated with them, warming himself at their fire. This is absolute tragedy. I need to ask you this morning, are you warming yourself at the enemy's fire? What do you mean the enemy's fire? What do you mean warming myself at the enemy's fire? Well, who is the enemy? Satan. And he is the God of this world. The fire is sort of a picture for us of this world. The things of this world. It's all that Satan has to tempt you with. Are you warming yourself at the enemy's fire? Peter, now walking at a distance from Jesus having broken off fellowship, no longer being in that intimacy, no longer being in that communion, no longer relating through prayer, now finds even the camp of the enemy to hold some attraction, some warmth, some comfort, some value. Peter would not have been caught dead there 24 hours ago. He would never have been sitting around the fire with those that would put the nails through Jesus' hand. He never would have done that. And now just a few hours later, he's sitting there in the shadows warming himself at the enemy's fire. Listen to me. If you are in love with the Lord, cultivating your walk with him, the world holds no attraction to you. The enemy comes along and tempts you with things of the world, get out of here. And he goes, amen. But if you're following at a distance, he's able to make the world seem so attractive. The things of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, all of a sudden, because you've disconnected from the Lord, there is this longing in your heart, and the enemy is all too happy to come in with suggestions. Things of the world. Hey, you deserve. You should have. It's your right. It's okay. Nobody knows. Try it. Do it. Shh. It's okay. Warming yourself at the enemy's fire. Are you flirting with the things of the world right now in your Christian life? If so, today is your day to repent. 
If you are flirting with the things of the world, only you know that. No one can answer that question for you. God knows. And today he's calling you. He's firing warning shots across your bow. Today he is calling you to come home. But if you are warming yourself at the enemy's fire, you need to come out of that. It says in John 18, 18, that Peter was with them. I love the wording that John gives us. Peter was with them. He had said a few hours earlier, Jesus, I am willing to go with you. Now he is with them. Jesus said, you are either for me or you are against me. Jesus said, if you are not helping me to gather, then you are scattering. If you are not actively engaged in the work and the war of the kingdom, then you're scattering. It's the words of Jesus. Either for me or against me. You're helping me to gather or you are scattering. Peter was with them. Though he had said earlier, he is willing to be with Jesus. The last one, verse 5. Here it is. Or not verse 5, number 5. Last step to misery are denials and disassociations. Denials and disassociations. This starts with self-confidence. doesn't seem bad. Prayerlessness. Just one night of praying when they should, or sleeping when they should have been up praying. Following Jesus at a distance. It wasn't even a long time. It wasn't like he'd been backslidden for weeks. It was just an evening. Now he finds himself at the enemy's fire. And what comes next is denials and disassociations. Verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You two were with Jesus the Nazarene. She was so right. He was with Jesus. He wasn't anymore. She's a servant girl. I'm sorry, but in the culture, that was as, you know, inconsequential as it gets. She was a servant girl. Peter's an apostle of Jesus Christ. She's a little girl, a servant. And she says, I think you were with Jesus, weren't you? It says in verse 68, but he denied it saying, I neither know or understand what you're talking about. I don't even know what you're talking about. Jesus who? Jesus what? Nazar where? Next verse. And the maid, a maid, a maid, a maid. The maid saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this was one of them. But again, he was denying it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. And in verse 71, it says, But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. He began to curse and swear as he denied Jesus for the third time. It doesn't mean that he used foul language. In that culture, it means that he put upon himself a curse if he was lying. It would be the same as you and I saying, may God kill me and damn me if I'm lying. I don't know Jesus. Whoa, 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 whoa. wait a minute, Peter. Wait a minute, Peter. You just had supper with him. You just said to him, I'm willing to die for you, Lord. I'm willing to go to prison. You've walked with him for three years. You've seen him walk upon the water. He pulled you from the water. You've seen him raise little girls and young men from the dead. You've seen him loosen the lips of the mute, open the ears of the deaf, heal the legs of the lame. And now you say, may God kill me and damn me. I don't know him. 
If you had told Peter 12 hours ago that he would say that about Jesus Christ, he probably would have cut your head off. It would have been unthinkable. It would have been offensive. It would have been unimaginable. But it was only hours later that he did it. Please beware of the progressive nature of sin. A little self-confidence. A little neglect of the prayer life. Just lagging behind a little bit in devotion and intimacy with the Lord. Just flirting with the things of the world. And you begin to deny him. You may not verbally deny him, but we deny him when we disobey him. We deny him when we don't take a stand for him. We deny him when we just simply say no. He's leading us in a direction, no, I won't do that. Yeah, I'm sorry, Lord, but I'm not going to change. It's the same thing. Denying who Jesus is in our lives. And we see the, we see the outcome. Verse 72. And immediately a cock crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus made the remark to him, before a cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. His heart was broken. He began to weep bitterly. Chest heaving, body convulsing, heart coming apart within him. When I was in Carpentry High, I was high a lot. And I got into drugs a little bit, and um, I had some LSD in my car one day. I was selling LSD at school. And there was a security guard at the school. His name was Steve Hall. And uh, he weighed about 975 pounds. He was a great guy. He was really nice to the kids. But if you got in trouble, he's the one that came for you. And the last thing that you ever wanted was for him to come in your class and call you out. And if he came in and called you out by your last name, it was over. I'm sitting in English class one day, and he comes in, and he walks right in front of the teacher, and he points at me, and he says, Merrick, I knew it was over. Took me to the office. They said, hey, someone ratted you out. We know that you're selling drugs on campus. Uh, we're going to call the cops. <laughs> cops? Call the cops, carp cops. I don't sweat the cops. Call the cops. I don't sweat that. Okay, we're calling the cops. And we're going to call your mom. <laughs> no. Don't, no, no, don't call my mama. Please don't call my mom. Call the FBI. Call the KGB. Call the CIA. Call anybody. Don't call my mama. I've always been a mama's boy. Loved my mom. Didn't want my mom to know. Mom came. Cops came. Cops were questioning me. And they finally said, Mr. Merrick, please stand up. And they began to read me my rights. 16 years old. And my mom was just to the side of me right here. They pulled my hands behind my back, and the last thing I wanted to see was my mom. They pulled my hands behind my back, and they put the cuffs on. They put them on so tight. I remember saying, why do you have to do it so tight? I'm not going to do anything. And I was doing everything I could not to look at my mom. And in an instant, before I could even think to close my eyes, they swung me toward my mom. My eyes met hers. My heart has never broke like it broke that day. Because the eyes of my mom said, Son, I love you. You're still my baby boy. 
Son, you may blow it and leave me. I will never leave you. This doesn't change anything between us. All that was spoken in the eyes of my mother. We're told in the parallel account of Luke 22, verse 61, that at the moment the cock crowed, Jesus turned and he looked at Peter. And the eyes of Peter met the eyes of his Lord. And I'll tell you what the eyes of Jesus said. Son, I love you. I knew you would leave me, but I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. Peter, I'll meet you in Galilee in a few days. We'll be best friends again. That's our Jesus. That's our Savior. He would restore Peter and make him ten times the man he ever was. He would never call him Simon again. He would be Peter the Rock. Lord, we thank you. for loving us, even though you see our hearts, even though you know our failures, even as you did Peter. Pray today for those of us who have had a warning shot fired across our bow, that you would look upon us now, Lord, that you would shed your love upon us, that you would draw us to repentance with your loving kindness, that you would speak to our hearts once again, son, daughter, I love you. I knew you'd leave me, but I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I have inscribed you upon the palms of my hands. A mother may forget her nursing child, but I will never forget you. Speak that to us, Lord, and draw us to repentance that we would repent, that we would go beyond saying, Lord, I'm sorry. We would change our mind. We would come to you and say, Father, transform me. I'm changing my mind today about that sin. God, change my heart. God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, renew me, transform me, refresh me, forgive me. I want to be God-reliant, God-confident. I want to be prayerful. I want to be intimate. I want to receive all my warmth and comfort from you. I want to confess you and never deny you.